Hello and welcome to Springboard Your Virtual University. My name is Albert Okran, matriculating you into Ghana's foremost developmental program running since 2008. Springboard is brought to you by the Springboard Racial Foundation and proudly sponsored by MTN Pulse, the enterprise group UMB Bank, with support from our media partners, the multimedia group and the graphic business. Today we return to our top 10 series and try to understand the top five principles of our guests, as well as their prescriptions for their ideal Ghana. So who do you have today? Jeremiah Boabing is an entrepreneur, a writer, and what else? What else are you? Speaker, consultant, trainer. All right, he's giving me, he's giving me a few more. So Jeremiah runs a series of companies under the Boabing Group, and is the convener of the Accra Youth Summit. But my preference, because of my agribusiness inclinations, is the new baby Enige restaurant. Jeremiah, welcome to Springboard. Thank you, Rev. Let me congratulate you on Enige. Food is, food is big for us here at Springboard. In fact, anything agribusiness is big for us here at Springboard. And what, what is the motivation, inspiration behind going into agribusiness and food for that matter? Well, um, my first reason, I'll call it political. Um, when I see certain businesses in Ghana from other parts of the world doing very well, I'm inspired, but at the same time, I'm worried. So if you see China Mall, you're looking at a colony. So if somebody can come all the way from China to come and establish a mall in Ghana and, put, and call it China Mall. All these restaurants that we're calling Thai restaurants, Chinese restaurants, they, they are actually countries exporting their products to our country. And we love them, we celebrate them. And when I look at them, I ask myself, do we have a Ghana mall in China? Do we have Ghana restaurants around the world? Oh yeah, they are. They are. So is, is there a concerted effort to export our products, to export our dishes, to export the things we do around the world? So that's my primary motivation, to build a business that can go around the world and also make a name for Ghana. Then my secondary motivation is that food is a, is a product that is consumed by everybody. I mean, whether you're broke, whether you have money, you're certainly going to eat. So I'm looking for a business that uh, can reach, that has scalability, that can reach more people, that has a larger market size. So that's my motivation for getting into food. I'll come to the other things you do, but let me just ask you for purposes of our uh, listeners and viewers, what will be the one differentiating thing of your restaurant from the others that will be available? What, what's the one big thing that you think will be unique about it? Well, I say that even though we are running a restaurant, we are running it with a hotel mindset. I love hotels. Hotels give you a relaxing environment where you can think, you can brainstorm, you can feel comfortable, and not even feel like rushing off to go home. So I tell my people that even though we are running a restaurant, I want us to run it with a hotel mindset. Let's create an environment that will make people forget that they have to leave. So let's create a relaxing environment. Let's make people comfortable. Let's make people enjoy our space. So we are not just selling food. Our, our, our USP is in, three, is in three parts. First, to serve delicious garden food at home quality level. So you know sometimes you go to restaurants and you eat things like fufu. It doesn't feel like people at home. It sounds, the soup even feels foreign. But I want people to come and eat food that they, 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 they would have loved to cook at home, but don't have the time to cook. So it must be quality African food. And then we must give, treat our people well. So there must be a certain concerted effort to make people feel respected, welcome, welcoming. And I say, it begins right from the car park. So whoever is receiving guests at the car park must understand the philosophy of the business. It's called NEJ. Even though it's a coinage of my wife and my name, and I'm in Jeremiah, it's also to represent happiness. So people should be happy coming to our business. And then suddenly we must have a great ambience. So we are trying to create a hotel experience in a restaurant. I think, that you, I think you should, and this is free consultancy, <laughs> I think you should make the word experience the centerpiece of your communication. So if you see the energy experience, then you know the three things that exactly. you should expect. Okay, so let's, 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 let's go back to 
the, the broad spectrum of things that you do, and, I, and I'll go back to where you started from, but the first thing I would like to find out, which of the things you do gives you the most fulfillment? What I do as a people developer, I think for me that's a centerpiece of, of all my interventions. Developing people, getting people to do well, inspiring people to dream, equipping them with skills, tools, and ideas. That's what inspires me the most. How, how did it begin? Well, so I started life with a strong passion for, for reading. Um, as early as class three, I was reading newspapers. I, was, I remember somewhere in primary school, I think I read the Bible from back to back, reading a lot. And then eventually, my passion for reading um, metamorphosed into a passion for wisdom. So I started gathering wise quotes, inspirational sayings, and stuff like that. It became more intense after GSS. So I started gathering these quotes. Then when, when I went to secondary school, I started reading inspirational books. So I remember in secondary school from one, I read uh, Yalpebi's Youth Power, uh, somewhere from to a chance upon your Facebook, 10 Commandments of Success. Then I read David Schwartz's Magic of Thinking Big. And I read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So having read those books, I, I became convinced that my, my calling in life is to inspire people, is to share ideas, share knowledge, share wisdom that will help people improve their life. Sometimes I'd have said that that was my full purpose, but now I know that it was a hint. Because I've come to realize that uh, there are many aspects of me that I've come to discover that I, I didn't used to have. So that's how it started. So way back, I joined a group called Peer Counselors. That was uh, basically the students, the student wing of the school's counseling department. So we used to move, talk to our, our mates, talk to our juniors, and stuff like that. So in secondary school from three, I got the opportunity to make my first public presentation as a speaker at, a, at the peer counselors conference. So when I left secondary school, I mean, the journey began. I started writing letters to churches, to schools, uh, to ask me to come and speak, speak for them. So basically, that's how I started. So if I, if I, if I was asked what was, what's the most important habit that has impacted my life, it will be reading. And I would say that reading will lead you because... Very early, I, I, I started life with a strong sense of destiny, feeling that God had called me to do something unique, to make a contribution, to do something special. But I wasn't sure what it was. But reading led me there. Whilst I read stuff, I read history, I read fiction, I read philosophy, I read, I, I read the World Book Encyclopedia, people who had accomplished great things appealed to me. So I would go to the internet cafe then, and read about J. Paul Getty, William Randolph Hearst, Bill Gates, Mike Adeduga, and print all of these Wikipedia pages out. So as I did that, it gave me a hint about where I had to go with my life and what, what I had to do. What are you looking for? I'm looking for a better Ghana. A better world, but particularly a better Ghana. For me, probably what will give me the greatest fulfillment in life is that in about the next 30 or 35 years, Ghana will be a developed country. I think that if, if that happens, I'll be a fulfilled man. What does a developed country look like? Well, so I would say that a developed country is a country that shows excellence in everything. So excellence in our roads. So we are not dropping litter. Our roads are good quality. Our houses are good. There is infrastructure. Our houses are performing well. Our business are, are, are doing well. So for me, that's my idea of a developed country. There should be excellence across many of the key areas of the country's life. We'll explore a bit more of your prescriptions for the ideal Ghana in the second segment. But let's, let's zoom in on your learnings on this journey. You talk about starting out to, to read, and I'm fascinated because reading is something that we we believe should be the anchor of, of people's lives. And you're seeing that it's the one habit that has defined your life the most. And so in the course of your journey, what are some of the key learnings that you'd like to share with our viewers and listeners? So uh, again, I'll emphasize the, the very first lesson that reading will lead you. So I recommend reading to people, especially if you're coming from a disadvantaged background and you're trying to lift yourself up, you're trying to build a great future for yourself, you want to read because reading exposes you to 
a world of possibilities that you don't know existed. You read about people who have done certain great things in life and history, and it will inspire you to believe that you can also make something out of yourself. And really, we're exposed to the world. There are many places that I've not been to in the world. I've not been to New York, but I know some suburbs in New York as if I've been there before. So I've, 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 I've traveled countries just by reading, just by reading. So reading is a good habit to have. The next lesson I would, I, would, I would recommend is a lesson of confidence. Confidence will lift you. Because when I began to discover myself, my gift and my abilities, I had to do something. About this time, I was about just about 18, 19, 20. And I'd found in myself a desire to inspire people, to encourage people. So I said that I'll start organizing my own conferences. So in 2009, I hosted my very first conference in my alma mater Accra Academy, recorded the Success Skill Set Summit. It was during the vacation period, and we were targeting the vacation school, but vacation school for them, they weren't targeting us. So it was very... <laughs> you know, somehow, somehow everybody who does events has their first experience, something that they had so much fame for. If I not just events, but business. Yeah. Something they had so much fame for, they had done all their feasibility, they thought they were so, so much on point, and they and fell so badly. It was, it was terrible. How bad was yours? I mean, I mean, it was, how many people came for that event? I'm not sure it was even up to 10. I'm not sure it was even up to 10. And that day, unfortunately, the rain fell. I don't even think that the rain fell made much of a difference, but a sport is more. Maybe 10 people would have showed up. Five people came because of the rain. So, and this one was about 20, 21. Probably 20. And then, that was August of 2009. Then, in October 2009, I went to Kaswa and I organized Youth Impact Motivational Conference. That was well attended. I mean, I mean was, the place was full, it overflowed, and stuff like that. Eventually, I went on to school to organize Onslaught Motivational Conference, Career Compass, and hosted some of the, I mean, the big names I hosted you in 2010. I hosted Anne White, Bernard Abler, uh, KSM, Kafuide, and all of those things. Today, when I look back at those years of my life, I wonder, ah, how did I get the confidence to do all of these things? Because when I started hosting motivational conferences to inspire people to succeed, I was just an SS graduate. I had no tertiary education. As a matter of fact, I went to speak in Zenith University at a time when I not even bought university form. I went to speak to university students to inspire them. So I recognize the importance of confidence that when you find a gift that God has given you, you must be confident to display the gift, to express the gift, to put the gift to good use. I think that so many people in life behave like pitchers. You know, in university, there are pitchers, people who don't have hostels, who come and live with other people in a hostel. And because they are pitching, they try and play safe. They don't want to speak their minds. They don't want to do anything that will, that will offend their host. They try to be too careful. And too many of us behave like that. So people find their gifts, people find their strengths, but they are afraid to express it. They are afraid to display it. They are afraid to do something that will make them the subject of conversation. But you don't have to live life like, like a pitcher. God gave you a gift for you to use. The Bible says that you were given a gift to be a city set on a hill. And you don't light a lamp and place it under a bushel. You place it on a lampstand. So whatever gift a person has, they have to be confident to express the gift. One, one of the things that prevents them from expressing their gift, their strengths, is very often their weakness. So there's something that God has called you to do or become but then you're looking at something that you don't have. So I was just an SS graduate with no career achievement, no educational pedigree, nothing. I could have looked at all of those things and said, I don't qualify to go and talk to anybody. But I had read a lot. So at least let me share what I've read with people. And it was the beginning of a journey. So I want to just encourage people that believe in what God has called you to do and let it flow. So you've given us two so far, um, apart from your 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 determination to see a better world and a better Ghana. You've particularly spoken about the fact that reading will lead you and confidence will lift will you. Lift you. Um, before I go on to the third, I would like to find out something you mentioned, that people behave like patches out of fear of criticism. You didn't use that word, but people talking about you. Yeah. How have you dealt with criticism in, in your journey? Um, in the early part of my journey, 
I must confess that I saw criticism as the enemy. And if you come from the kind of disadvantaged background that I come from, when somebody criticizes you, you feel like you should, you should fight back. Uh, why are you trying to tell me that I'm not good enough? And all of those things. But over time, criticism has become my friend. Because I think that confidence is not always an advantage. And it's shocking for me to say this. Confidence is not always an advantage. Confidence can make you cocky. And confidence can make you refuse to listen to things or people that you should listen to. And criticism has helped me tame my confidence. Helped me refine myself. Helped me become better. And I think that is a lot of, that's one thing that a lot of us must learn how to deal with. How do we leverage criticism to improve ourselves, to improve our communication, to improve our posture, to improve how we present ourselves? Having run a business for almost a decade, having dealt with people, I think that too many times people don't like to be criticized. Even when you're giving people friendly feedback to improve their work, their tendency is often to push back, to fight back, to defend themselves. And I've worked with people at different levels, educated people with a master's degree or artisans who were half-educated, and it, 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 it seems to stretch across the divide. So criticism for me has helped shape me, helped make me better, helped me refine not just the gift, but how the gift is expressed. Let's explore the, the difficulties of being a CEO. I know it's a subject we've spoken to about off, off air in a couple of our interactions, but running... Uh, comms business, uh, comms and PR business, a design and print entity, running a restaurant, running different entities that you do, uh, your own publications. What are, some of, what, what are some of the extremely difficult experiences you've had that you look back on and you're like, wow. <laughs> it, it looked nice from afar, but <laughs> getting in is it, tough. For the benefit of somebody listening who's also, also starting their own, own journey. Well, well, in truth, nothing prepares you for being a CEO. Nothing. You know, it's, it's very easy to look at somebody who's a CEO and think that he has a job and I have a job. But I say that you have a job, but a CEO has multiple jobs. So one of the challenges that I've had is having to develop competencies in so many areas. Because even though I may have a head of HR, I must know HR in order to be able to guide my head of HR to do HR well. I don't have a finance background, but I must learn finance to understand how to manage the cash flow and the equity in my, in my business. I must learn a bit of accounting to understand what the accountant is doing for me. I must learn management, I must learn marketing, I must learn PR. So one of the, probably the biggest challenge for being a CEO is the requirement to be multidisciplinary. So you are always hard pressed for time. You are trying to learn HR, you are trying to learn finance, you are trying to learn accounting, trying to learn strategy, you're trying to learn marketing, trying to learn sales. So for me, if you ask me, that's, that, that has been my biggest challenge. I know that the cliche or the stereotype out there for a lot of entrepreneurs is capital, that, oh, when you say your biggest challenge, people will say money. Money is a limitation, I agree. But for me, I think that the, the foremost limitation is capacity, being able to make the right decisions. If you don't build the capacity to understand how a business works, how to manage the various intricacies of a business, no matter how much money you get, you lose it. So my biggest challenge, I would say, is trying to acquire the capacity to become effective at running a business. Perhaps the next one I'll say is managing people. Managing people can be very difficult. Let me give you a very uh, just uh, interesting thing that happened some years ago. In a particular month, I wasn't able to pay my staff on time. So salary is delayed for about two or so weeks. And it hadn't happened like that, at least in that season. So when the salaries were paid, I decided to test all my colleagues and apologize for the delay of the salaries and explain to them why it happened and the fact that it don't happen again. I mean, I thought I'd been a top CEO by doing that. My Adipa! Then later, I speak to one of my colleagues and he tells me that eh, they are insulting you, they are gambling that eh, JB says that when we want to ask permission, we should call him, we shouldn't test. And he, when he wants to apologize to us, he's testing us, he didn't call us. Hey! 
I mean, for a young person who's trying to manage his ability to manage people, it was ah, <laughs> So it speaks to the fact that people don't see things the way you see them. And we all don't have the same understanding. It can become very difficult in running a business because I say that for every leader, you have a struggle between popularity and performance. What should I do for people to like me? And what should I do for us to be able to achieve our goals? And very often, those two things are opposed each other. So somebody has lost a laptop. Should we forgive him? Or should we punish him for losing the laptop? My instance as a businessman says that, no, let's let people understand that you cannot lose a lot, lot of an organization. But the person is my friend. <laughs> so how, how do I do that? So it can create it's a certain balance that every leader has to do. But I assert that performance should always be above popularity. And then every leader must also try and teach. Because when I look, about, look back at, at my life, some of the people that I followed who found offense in me I feel that if they are really taking their time to teach me and help me understand why they expected me to do something and I didn't do it or why something had to be done, it may have helped. But I was rebuked and punished, but I did not really understand why what I did shouldn't have been done. So I recognize the role of the CEO or the leader as a coach that don't just issue instructions, try and explain, try and teach. My experience has taught me that even that one crown may not make a lot of a difference, but that small degree of difference may, get, may make some difference with some of the people in your team and you can carry them where you want to take them to. This point of engagement, this point about engagement will be applicable to governments, will be applicable to, to parenting, will be applicable to communications. And I'm using engagement, stakeholder engagement, because the sense I get is that what you're simply saying is that you have a viewpoint Others have a, a different viewpoint, and in trying to exercise the power that you have, don't just avoid saying, I'm the boss, that's what I'm saying, so let's do it. Take time to, and talk, talk, talking about that, there's int an interesting development um, in Christian circles, in parenting circles, where the young people are asking questions, and you just can't say, do it because I say so. You need to break it down, and then they'll ask you follow-up questions, and that is, is good. That assertiveness is good because it shows that they are not just embracing things for the sake of it. And that's yeah. one of the brilliant things the young people are doing today. All right, let me, let me um, end the segment on the note of diversification. You've done so many things and you still are doing a number of things. Why? Um, it's a subject I've thought about uh, very intensely because... I mean, you that I look up to as a mentor has been more focused in what you do. At some point, I had to ask myself the question whether that was me or not. But I've come to a conclusion that I'm not a specialist. I mean, for many years, I had a lot of debate with my peers about specialization and generalization. You remember, you remember the, that big debate when Vikram Masharamani from Yale came to the Festival of Ideas and, 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 and spoke about this subject. And it's been a big debate till now. Exactly. So, so you, you, are, you, are, you think you are not a specialist. I'm not a specialist. I'm a generalist. I, I thrive on variety. I thrive on being able to do something. So I, I'm excited by the fact that maybe right after this interview, I'm meeting my chefs to discuss what our market list for next week is. Right after that interview, I'm meeting my sales department to discuss their reports, their reports and their plans for, for, the, for the coming week. That's what excites me. I live on variety, the excitement, the chase. Monotony bores me. So I don't think that even there are some, there are some speakers who specialize in, on, on some topics or some themes. I could never specialize. I'll be bored. I like being able to. So sometimes I even ask my, 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 my host, give me a topic. I want to challenge him by giving me a topic that I've never done before. So I have to push me to think, to develop new ideas. So at the base of my desire to diversify is basically doing something that fits my temperament, that fits my, my nature, that I want something that will keep me going. If I get bored, I'll lose momentum. So that is it. But then the other part of it is strategic. 
my belief is that markets are small. So for example, one of our companies, a publishing company, there's a limit, there's a, there's a limit on how big the publishing business can be. There's a limit on how many people will publish a book. So if I'm trying to create wealth, I can't create wealth through one company. Whatever I do, the market has a size. And there's only so much that I can accomplish in that market. So why don't I explore businesses or opportunities in other markets? So if I want to make $10 million or $1 million and I make $500,000 from, from about five different markets, then it accumulates into the major picture of trying to create wealth. So that's what I'm trying to do. This is springboard your venture investing. What you're trying to do is distill the lessons from my guest for today, Jeremiah Buabing. I've known Jeremiah for, for a couple of decades and we've, we've, we've traveled this country, gone as far as 701 kilometers away just doing what we do and he's one of my favorite um, emerging speakers and young leaders in business and we talk a lot bounce ideas a lot and have great great expectations of him jeremiah you've been sharing your lessons so far and my summary one reading will lead you two confidence will lift you the third one was about criticism you said it was initially your enemy and it's now your friend the fourth is about business leadership. You say nothing prepares you for the life of a CEO. And the fifth is about diversification. We'll go for a break. When we come back, let's talk about the Ghana that you described that in 35 years should be a developed country. Let's talk about those things you say, ah, so this one too, can we not do it? And let's see if we can share these lessons with our viewers and our listeners. Please don't go away. Ah, Joe, won't he? Enterprise Insurance would dear woman promo nana. Hey, what it? <laughs> Four coupons. Vom washing machine. Vom car washer. Vom baby. Vom obiadia. Vom. Buy or renew your existing motor insurance policy and win instant rewards such as fuel coupons and branded gift items in this year's Odia Wobo Moto Insurance promo. You could also win an iPhone 14, front load washing machine, high pressure car washer, vacuum cleaner, and an auto tie inflator during the monthly raffles and the slick crash rocket motorbike at the end of the six month promotion. Making us laku. Call your insurance broker, agent, or visit any enterprise insurance branch and get your reward now. You can also call us on 0302-634-777. This promo is in partnership with NLE on the Characters platform. Terms and conditions apply. Enterprise, your advantage. <laughs> when you can be anything, who will you become? When you can go anywhere and never feel alone, how far will you go? When you have the means to make your dreams real, when will you start? When your voice can reach every ear, who will you inspire? When your money can travel faster and further than you ever could, where will you send it? When you can tell a story in every language, which ones will you tell? When nothing can stop you, and everyone's behind you and, and the, the whole world, world awaits, awaits you. you don't go alone go with us everywhere, everywhere you, you go. go Aquaba UMB is proud to offer you the best business solutions possible. We have been excelling in serving Ghana since 1972, and our sole interest is to make your business succeed. We are committed to making you to become number one in any sphere of business or enterprise you are pursuing. With our experience in growing some of the biggest SMEs in Ghana, we can support you become the business leader in Okaishi, Suami, Abusokai, or any of the SME enclaves in Ghana with our SME solutions. Our latest SME loans allows you to take a loan backed by the value of your cash flow and inventory so you can increase your trade efficiently. Speak to our business bankers or visit any of our branches now. UMB Bank, you first. Welcome back to Springboard, your virtual university. My name is Albert Okran and I'm hanging out with Jeremiah Boabing, who's the CEO of the Boabing Group and a writer as well as a speaker and several other things. Jeremiah has been sharing his thoughts about 
his life lessons. And you've garnered five so far. Reading will lead you. Confidence will lift you. Talked about criticism first as an enemy and now as a friend. Then he spoke about business leadership. And then he shared on diversification. He says monotony bores him. He just can't handle doing the same thing. So he wants to try different things. Springboard is brought to you by the Springboard Ratio Foundation in partnership with MTN Pulse, the Enterprise Group UMB Bank, with media support from the multimedia group and the graphic business. Let's move on now to that big subject, the ideal Ghana. Somebody says, why, why the ideal Ghana? And can the ideal ever be achieved? The motivation is very simple. We are saying that some people, a limited number of people may have power, but everyone who has a, a stake in this country has an expectation and an idea and we want to create a platform where people can articulate these ideas with clarity so we ask ourselves you know what if nothing this particular one we can do it and, and it won't cost us anything we don't even need an external partner to do it why are we not doing it so that it can engender debate especially on digital media platforms about alternatives we could explore in our quest to become great and strong german your ideal Ghana, you, 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 you teased a little in your earlier submission, but what would be the first thing you look out for? I think that we ought to have national ambition to become a developed nation. Um, I've, I've teased this idea a couple of times on social media, and it looks like a lot of people have given up on Ghana. Um, people don't believe that we can be great. But I think that the same way that people like Kwame Nkrumah, JB Dankwa, became hungry and desirous of breaking Ghana out of the shackles of colonialism, some of us in this generation must become hungry and desirous of making Ghana a developed nation. I mean, easy definition of developed nation, let's become like a Singapore. Let's become like an America. Let's become like a Britain. Can an African nation become so developed, so well structured, so well organized, so improved that it can look like any of these countries, yes. But we need to have national ambition. It must be on our minds. It must be something that we wake up every day thinking about um, how do we make Ghana a great nation. I think both at the top level of government or the low level of citizens, we don't think enough about this. And we become like survivors who are trying to survive, who are trying to make it, we are trying to uh, get by every day. But we don't have any ambition. So as a nation, let's get ambitious. The next thing I'll talk about would be we need to re-engineer our education. I think that when you study education, education seems to say, oh, people are empty. Let's let them, let them go to school so that we can push knowledge in them. But I don't think that that's how education should be. Education's purpose should be to help people unleash what is inside of them. There's a connection between that and building a great nation. Because if you are going to make people into things, so without regard for their gifts, their strengths, and their passions, they will not, will not raise great people. So education should move from just trying to push knowledge into people, science, business, but trying to take time to find out what are people inclined to us, what are their gifts, what are their abilities, and how do we help them to develop that gift or ability? Because really, if you look at life, you look around the world, those who are the most prominent, the most influential, they are people who are deploying the area, their area of gifting. So we go to school, we, have, we focus on doing courses, writing exams, we write, 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 write exams, then we, we graduate. But no regard to people's giftings, people's abilities, people's strengths, helping people develop things that can really make a difference in the world. So we need to re-engineer our education. If I go to the how-to of this particular prescription, how? Let's throw away a lot of the course that I studied in school. Like? <laughs> too much. I think that, I actually think that school is too rigid than it should be. We should do more things that will help people explore. First of all, let's do smaller classrooms. Because see, if you're going to help somebody develop the ability to speak or the ability to write or bring out a gift for invention, if, they, if there are 70 people in a basic school class, you can't do that. So let's develop smaller classrooms. 
And then let's move from activities that require you to just take a pen and a paper to write. And let's do what I call demonstration. Demonstration. So if you are, if you are, if you are in an engineering class, if you are in an, a literature class, if you are in whatever class, that you, in a marketing class, let's, let's change from the system where you are given a book, you study the book, come and put the book back. And let's run a system where we are exploring ideas, we are creating things. So if you're in a marketing class, we are doing marketing planning. Let's discuss a marketing plan. Then let's all go and do a marketing plan and come and run it. And let's even create a business where we apply the marketing plan. Because see, the difference between school and real life is that in school, you learn marketing plan. It's not actually a question in an exams. You write some. Maybe you write some part of the marketing plan. The teacher does not assess your marketing plan based on his ability to get results. He will assess the marketing plan by, okay, uh, introduction, executive summary, two marks, uh, analysis, three marks. So in the end, you've, you've scored the marks, the marks, but we don't know whether your marketing plan is a marketing plan that works or it doesn't work. So let's run an education system where we are doing more practical work. People are practicing. So I say that every degree program must list at least five skills that those who are doing it must have by the time they are, they are done. So if you are doing a degree in finance, a degree in banking, a degree in accounting, what are the top five skills that you must have at the time you are done? And then let's develop the content of the course to help people hone those skills. Because people really graduate school and they have a degree. Nowadays, I'm even confused about what the word degree means anymore. Is it the certificate or the knowledge or the skills? We're not sure. So let's change our approach. Smaller class classrooms, more practical exercises, I even think, if I'm president of Ghana, I'll abolish exams in this current form. No writing of exams on paper. Because it doesn't make any difference. I mean, first of all, I run a business, I have employees. If I ask my employee to develop a communications plan for the company, he's allowed to research from any source, laptop, computer, textbooks. I don't understand why I go to school and I'm asked to prepare a communications plan and they say no textbook. So, so much of education is memory, chew, poor, chew, poor. There's very little emphasis on creativity, thinking, analysis, creating results. So you like open book exams? Or it's you not like a, exams at all? It, let's even not do, like we should avoid exams where somebody is sitting down and writing. If you say you have studied strategy, come and show us a business that you are starting and what your strategy is. Go and start a business for a while. Go and implement it. Let's see the results. Nan Shoko shared in her submission um, recently um, on the same broadcast about um, a science program she volunteered to support and it was, it was very beautiful, the description. She says, the children are being taught diffusion and instead of chewing definitions, the teacher lets them stand in the corner and sprays perfume here. As the perfume scent travels... So this is diffusion? Yeah, that's simple. The definition of diffusion and osmosis, I knew it more so than anybody in the world. So I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. I didn't Chewed. movement of what 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 molecules to whatever. I knew it. I never understood it until my adult life. Listen, if you are a science teacher, don't be offended. This is reality. I mean, don't be offended that we are we are taking apart the way things have been taught over the years. In fact, it's not even a science issue. I mean I can it's apply to economics. So you are saying that and it's, it's it's surprising. It's not surprising, I must say. But it's it's interesting that Education is featuring in literally every resource person's presentation, and it's often departing from how we've done it to yes. doing it differently, and that's that, that's very and, encouraging. And Rev, when you look at almost every other sphere of life, there's been radical improvement, except education. Like we are still sitting in the classroom, the same way we are sitting. We are still using a board, teaching the same way for hundreds of years. Oh, but we've gone into what? virtual learning, we've gone into collaborating. The virtual learning is only a virtualization of what happens, what's happening <laughs> in the classroom. So you want more? Let's practicalize it. I mean, you do a degree in communications and half of the class cannot do public speaking. <laughs> That's crazy. National ambition is number one. Re-engineer our education is number two. What would be your number three? State-sponsored support and, and promotion for entrepreneurship. I think that many people believe that if we are going to develop as a nation, it will come from government. There's a truth in it. But if you, if you watch the men who built America, America was built by private entrepreneurs. So the country must recognize the fact that 
If, for example, I mean, nobody will even think about this. For the light bulb was developed by an entrepreneur. <laughs> the camera watching me right now was developed by an entrepreneur. The TV screen that people will watch the show on was developed by an entrepreneur. It wasn't by a government. So the country must recognize that one of the tools or pathways to developing our nation is to drive entrepreneurship. Let's encourage, let's support, let's equip people to become entrepreneurs. I mean, when I when we bought that restaurant, we went to buy fans. And I was upset. This brand, India, this brand, this I said, ah, what does it take to make fans that we can't make fans in Ghana? I mean, I'm not even saying we should invent any new thing, no. The old things that have been invented, let's also do it here. Why can't Ghana do its own fans? Why can't we do our own air conditions? Why can't we do our own television? Why can't we make our own cars? I'm not saying we should even invent new things. The old things that we have used for many years. By now, I think that in a country that is serious about building a serious nation, somebody should come to me and say, ah, you have employed almost 20 people at your age. What do we do to help you employ 200 people? And I'll show you my roadmap. So, there are so many scholarships, scholarships, scholarships. Go and do your master's abroad. Go and do your master's abroad. But there are very few programs empowering entrepreneurs, supporting entrepreneurs, funding entrepreneurs. And until we get our entrepreneurship question right, I don't think that we're going to become a great nation. Government will have to do more. And that dovetails into my next point. We must have increased citizen responsibility. I think we are too dependent on government. So you go to a typical neighborhood in Accra, you see big, big houses that clearly are built by people who have means. The road is bad. And everything for government is going to do the road. Someone will argue that. Someone will argue that if I pay my property rate and I pay my taxes, the government must provide me with the roads. How much tax do we pay as a country? And again, if we are trying to build a nation, all of, all of us must have an extra mile mindset. How can I go the extra mile? How can I go the extra mile? So if I can put in so much money and build a good house, I mean, really, if I have bad road, eh, I suffer more than government. I will use the road to and fro every day. So let's be, let's be more responsible. Let's do beyond our means. I think that too many times we are, many of us are at the level of personal success. I want to do well. But we're not thinking about the family, the community, the country. So how do I live my life in such a way that I can make a contribution to the success of those in my family, the success of those in my community, the success of those in my country? Because if many of us think beyond ourselves, I think we can make more progress than we are making now. Interestingly, for somebody else, the ideal Ghana will be a Ghana in which the state takes full responsibility for providing the roads and providing the utilities so that the individual can build their house and people can venture more to provide the infrastructure so that people can build businesses. So the, in the minds of, of, of many, the facilitating role that you mentioned earlier with regards to entrepreneurship must also be extended to infrastructure so that those who want to aspire and do big things can do them. But that's, that's why it's a conversation. Each one can bring their perspective to it. So your first point is about national ambition. Mm -hmm a collective desire to become a developed country. Second yeah. one is about re-engineering our education. You know, for all the things you said about that one, eh, the part I like is that if I were president, I'll, I'll abolish exams. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you get into trouble for that. It's like a headline. In, in, Rev, I run a business, I work with a laptop, I hardly write with a pen. Then I do a master's program and my exams is all pen, pen, pen. Like, it feels foreign to me. I'm always typing on my phone, my tablet, or my laptop. So I don't understand why I cannot be allowed to write my exams with my laptop with a laptop. Even if it's not my laptop and the, the school gives me a laptop. I mean, I don't understand why in a master's class of middle managers to senior executives who rarely use pen, they're writing exams with pen. Most likely half of, of us will fail. Because we, st we are struggling to do something that we don't usually do. Did you fail? I didn't fail. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, state-sponsored support for entrepreneurship is a big conversation across the world, and that's your third prescription. The fourth is about increased citizen responsibility. You are saying that, listen, most people are focused on their personal success and highly dependent on governments. You are saying that people should take responsibility for a bit more than that 
their community, their family, people around them, let me, let me say and then also for their environment. Okay. So the members of the East Legon Executive Fitness Club, these are high net worth individuals. They could easily raise 10 million Ghana cities to create a fund. What if they decide to adopt, say, 50 young entrepreneurs in Ghana, not those who are about to start, those who have proven that they know how to get results and say, we're giving all of you maybe a million cities each. Not a grant, it's a, as equity investment. Push it. That's happening in other parts of the world. In Ghana, we don't see that much. Why? I don't know. You're the one who reads, you're the one who researches. <laughs> so anytime you observe a phenomenon, why? And then when you get the answer, why again? Okay. And as we keep asking why, we'll find out why people do. Because what, as you talk about this, I can contrast, let's see, let me go outside our comfort zone and take the film industry. In another part of this sub-region, in our neighbors on our um, eastern side, if somebody does a film, there is literally competition from different people for you to come and shoot the film in their house. And the credits, right, that this house, this film was shot on location at Jeremy Abouavin's house. And it's almost like if you build a house and nobody comes to shoot a the film there, then you... Uh, the house is not nice. It's not nice. <laughs> so, so, so the film industry in that country is, is, is developed. And this is just one of several enablers. Contrast that with our country, Ghana. And hey, don't... I mean, the person does not even want you to know that this is their home. And it's not common for people to flaunt or show... Um, their assets. It's the same sub-region, but very contrasted. So the question then becomes the why. why. So trying to find out why would help us to know why people behave the way they do. But let's go on to your, your fifth prescription. Let's minimize corruption. We cannot eliminate corruption, but we can minimize it. I think that we underestimate what corruption does to us as a country. Because I see semblance between running a company and running a country. Running a company demands resources. If the CEO or founder of the company misappropriates the resources in the company, the company cannot achieve its objective. So if we need money to build a new office complex and the CEO is spending the money buying new cars and building more houses, the company cannot achieve its ob objectives. It's the same for a country. So if a hospital is supposed to be built for, say, $1 million, and somebody writes that it was, was built for $50 million, and then they take $49 million of that money. This is for something. That is money that should have gone for free SHS and free university that has gone to somebody's personal pocket. So we must become concerned about dealing with corruption. Corruption militates against our ambition to develop as a country. Because if an interchange that costs $50 million would be better for us $200 million, it means that we can only have one interchange instead of five. So we must make more effort as a country to deal with corruption. But so far, it looks like everybody is paying lip service to it and nobody's really dealing with it. We know we cannot necessarily eliminate it, but we, I mean, we cannot become a developed nation if the resources that we have to develop a nation, a few people are dashing their hands into it and just sharing it among themselves. So let's minimize corruption. In countries like China, in Japan, we've seen people executed. Um, we've seen people in government executed for misapplying resources. Would you, would you like to see something like that? Execution is is is, is big. It's a big deal. I, I wouldn't go that far because I also believe in forgiveness. I believe in giving people a second chance because people make mistakes, and sometimes people do things with good intentions that turn out to go wrong. So people make mistakes, so let's not execute them. But people should pay a certain price for doing the things that they do. So if it's imprisonment, if it is seizing their assets or whatever you're going to do, let's do it. But let's make a statement that we need the money we have to build the great country. So one person cannot chop it all. One person cannot chop it all because corruption militates against our developmental aspirations. Jeremiah started with national ambition and is ending with national ambition again. And the ambition is simple. We should become a developed country by the, in 35 years' time. Why, why 35? Because I'm 35. And for me, I feel like it's part of my assignment. So by the time I retire at 70, I should have accomplished my assignment. 
So Jeremiah is on an assignment for to, to, to see to a developed a developed Ghana. If you've been watching us or listening to us for the for the past um hour or so, we've been breaking down the thoughts of Jeremiah Boabing and he's been sharing his top ten. The first five being the learnings on his journey, and the second five being his prescriptions for a better Ghana. Because this is a virtual university, I'm going to run the thoughts by you again. And let's find out on social media which one is your favorite and why. So number one, reading will lead you. He says, if you want to discover your purpose and live a fulfilling life, you must read. Especially if you come from a disadvantaged background, it's even more imperative. Number two, confidence will lift you. When you find out what you want to do, you must be confident and not be too worried about what people say, but push on to do what you believe you are called to do and you will make it. The third one is about criticism. He says, initially, also because of where he was coming from, criticism was an enemy to him, but with time, he became aware that it could tamper his confidence a bit, shape his choices a bit, and make him a better person and, by extension, a better leader. The fourth is about business leadership. He says nothing prepares you for becoming CEO because whilst everyone has one job, a CEO has multiple jobs to enable you to oversee each function effectively. And that requires a lot of management of your time and a lot of learning. The fifth is about diversification. He says, listen, I'm not a specialist. I'm a generalist and monotony bores me. So I want to move from one thing to another and it gives me the drive and the and, and the vim to do different things. So that, that explains why he does what he does. On Jeremiah's ideal Ghana, it's five things. Number one, national ambition. He says we should aspire to become a developed country and it must feature in our conversations. It must be something we are passionate about. The next is about re-engineering our education. He says, if you were president, you would ban exams. I tried to suggest tampering it down to open book exams. He says, anything you write, you will ban it. So now you know. Please don't vote for him. <laughs> if, you want, if you want to write exams, please don't vote for Jeremiah. <laughs> he will ban it. He says, every degree must promise five skills. So curriculum, or what do you, what do you call that in... You're advertising for a university. You see, if you do architecture or engineering here, by the yeah, time your award finished. finishes, must these are the skills. five skills you must have. Yeah. So the, only, the person is, is graduating, we'll ask you, if the person didn't get the five skills, we'll get a refund. <laughs> the, the next one is about state-sponsored entrepreneurship. He's saying that beyond the effort of the individual, the state must be actively involved in supporting entrepreneurs, sponsoring them, funding them, and encouraging them to grow from 20 to 200 and beyond. The, the last but one is about increased citizen responsibility. It says beyond your personal success, don't be over-dependent on, on government. Look at how you can help the person next to you, your family, your environment, your community, and give something back to help make the world a better place. And the last one, let's minimize corruption. He says, if an overpass costs 50 million, and you say it costs 200. We can have one instead of four overpasses. So, corruption fights our developmental effort, and we can't be passive about it. I ask him about execution. He says, Don't kill them, forgive them. But forgiveness means putting them in jail and seizing the assets. <laughs> this is Jeremiah's ideal gun. Did I summarize it wrong? You did, sir. Charles, forgive them, but put them in prison. <laughs> I, I love that one. Eh? Jeremiah, what, what would be your closing thoughts? I mean, we, we are in a very turbulent time. And while we discuss all these prescriptions and all these learnings, there's a young person looking at us saying, Charlie, eh, but let's talk about today today. I mean, a combination of COVID, the, the famous Russia-Ukraine war, and the, in, the, the intense disruption of the global financial system, and in Ghana in particular, absolute disruption of our financial systems um, have left a number of young people uncertain. Look into this camera and tell them what 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 should they do? What would be your closing thoughts hmm. for a young person looking for hope? Interestingly, what I'm about to say is maybe unconventional. It may not be what people expect. But having observed life for a while, I think that I've recognized that there's a force that lifts, that lifts people up in life. People hardly rise to prominence by default, by chance. You know, some years ago, there was a a young lady in the US who became a billionaire just by selling makeup. I said, makeup, makeup. People are selling cars, they're not millionaires. 
But when I studied her, I said, no, oh, there's something behind it. There is something that lifts people up in life. It may be God or it may be the devil, but there's certainly something that lifts people up. Don't try to make your effort in life alone. You need to align with a divine power. You need to align with the demon, but with all the things that uncertain that is going on in the world, your degree, your degree from University of Ghana is not enough. Your skills are not enough. So you must try to deploy the power of the supernatural to help you achieve the results that you want to achieve. I think that even as a nation, I mean, maybe becoming developed is so big that we may not be able to do it only at a human level. So we might, we might want to consider deploy the power of the supernatural. So if you're there at whatever level that you are, you are in life, whether you're at the bottom, or you're in the middle, or you're in the top, you may want to consider aligning with God. I mean, I'm a Christian. That's why I recommend. It is God who lifts people up in life. If somebody is lifted up in life, it is either God or it's somebody else. So consider aligning yourself spiritually. So you're saying, apart from all the things you said, your faith is the takeaway anchor you want to share with people. Jeremiah, it's been, it's been great having you around, and let's do this again and have a conversation about another broad spectrum of events. My warm regards to Enam. Thank you, Rev. Thanks so much for having me. It's a blessing. So this has been another inspiring, engaging, transformational conversation about my top 10 with Jeremiah Boabin, CEO of the Boabin Group, and a writer and a consultant doing several different things, including convening the Accra Youth Summit. I'm mentioning it because I want him to reconvene it. He's, he's missed it a couple of years, and I'm not forgiving him for that one. So next time you hear about the Accra Youth Summit, you know that I'm endorsing it and encouraging Jeremiah to do it again. My name is Albert Okram, thanking you on behalf of the Springboard Ratio Foundation and our partners, MTN Pulse, the enterprise group UMB Bank, and our media sponsors, the multimedia group and the graphic business. So we come your way again next week. My name is Albert saying God bless you. God bless you and God bless you. Ah, Joe, won't it? Enterprise Insurance would dear woman promo nana. Hey, what it? <laughs> Four coupons. Wom washing machine. Wom car washer. Wom BBB. Wom Obiadia. Wom. <laughs> Buy or renew your existing motor insurance policy and win instant rewards such as fuel coupons and branded gift items in this year's Udia Woman Moto Insurance promo. You could also win an iPhone 14, front load washing machine, high pressure car washer, vacuum cleaner, and an auto tie inflator during the monthly raffles and the slick crutch rocket motorbike at the end of the six months promotion. Make no slacku. <laughs> Call your insurance broker, agent, or visit any enterprise insurance branch and get your reward now. You can also call us on 0302-634-777. This promo is in partnership with NLA on the Characters platform. Terms and conditions apply. Enterprise, your advantage. <laughs>
is a turning point. No more searching. searching. The light has come.